Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is based on one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That question led me on a deep dive into the history of my faith, the history of the Bible, the canon of the Bible, the, the Reformation, what happened in there, and all those things up to there and, and in between and before and after. And it was in that journey that I encountered for the first time the Catholic Church in her own words. And I began reading from Catholic theologians and Catholic historians, and I realized what I thought I knew about the Catholic Church and what Catholics believe was based in large part on misinformation and, more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. And that's the basis of this show. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. We fill in those gaps between what do you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. And this week I am joined by my new friend Mike Sharp, an evangelical convert to Catholicism with a story that's eerily similar to my and my wife's story. It involves Mary and miracles, wrestling with sola scriptura, with, with church history, with the liturgy, with the Eucharist, with why some churches do things one way, other churches do things another way, and really just following and discerning God's voice in the church and where that church uh, rests, where Christ's voice really rests, and where Christ's church is founded and and found. It's a remarkable, wonderful story, long, detailed ups and downs with all kinds of great ideas and insights. And one of the episodes that I think were, were awarded for, for me just kind of getting out of the way and letting Mike just tell his story. And it's a fantastic one. I think you will love it. This conversation and others on this show are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and our one-time donors at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. And I have a new one-time donor to thank. Well, not a new one, but a returning one-time donor. Thank you, Chris, for your extremely generous donation to the show. That helps this thing to keep on going and growing week after week. and makes it possible for me to find the time to be able to do this, not have to quit doing this and get a part-time job. So, I appreciate your support of the show. Thank you so much, Chris. You are a wonderful friend and supporter of the show. If you want to support the show, those links are in the show notes. Check them out there to see how you can do that. And please do pray for us. Pray for this show as well, because that really does help this thing. (laughs) That's the whole point, right? So thank you. And now, without any further ado, my fantastic conversation with Mike Sharp, his conversion to Catholicism. It's an amazing one, guys. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Thanks for watching, thanks for listening. If you're listening on podcast, thank you. Make sure you follow the show wherever you find it. Leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That helps to push the podcast out to new people. And tell a friend, hey, text them a link to the show, email them, uh, DM them, uh, let them know that that this episode, they're going to want to hear, not going to want to miss this one. If you're watching on video on YouTube, thanks. Uh, subscribe to the channel, uh, follow it, leave a rating, or leave a... <laughs> 
<laughs> you can't do those things. Give a thumbs up, please, on YouTube and share this link with a friend as well. And thanks for watching us on YouTube. This week, I am joined on the show by Mike Sharp. He grew up in a Bible-believing, conservative, evangelical home in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and attended an evangelical free church until he began University of Northwestern St. Paul, where he obtained a Bachelor's of Science in Biochemistry with a minor in Math and Bible, as you do. Shortly after college, he married his wife, Rebecca, and they moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where he attended a master's program and became a physician's assistant, graduating in 2016 and working in emergency medicine and critical care throughout his career. Him and his wife moved back to Rochester in 2017 and in 2020 moved back home to the Twin Cities. Upon moving, they began RCIA together and Rebecca and Mike were both received into the Catholic Church at the Easter Vigil in 2021. Mike, thanks for being here on the show. Uh, welcome and hello. Thank you. It's really uh, an honor to be here. I'm really excited to, to be here. Oh, I'm I'm jazzed to have you. And Satan is afraid, Mike, because as as just happened, I hit record on this show, and uh, the website that I use to record these things just just crashed, totally crashed. So I'm pretty sure that your story is so good that that the devil is trying to intervene, Mike, to prevent listeners from hearing it. So that's a pretty good review. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. Uh, come, Lord Jesus, help me out. <laughs> In addition to Satan, your story also is confirmed to be awesome by uh, by my friend in front of the show, Kenny Burchard. Uh, not an equal footing with, with with the devil, of course, but uh, <laughs> uh, equally interesting for his review of the show. Uh, Kenny actually sent me your details. Hey, you got to get this guy on the show. He's awesome. Uh, so Kenny, of course, has his own awesome episode of this show. His wife, Mary Jo, also recorded her conversion story. Those are some amazing stories. And anyone that Kenny says, hey, here's the guy you got to talk to. I listen to Kenny and Satan, as it turns out. And so, so Mike, I'm prepared to stop talking before I put my foot further down, down my throat. And uh, you got a good story to tell. So I'm happy to sit back and let you unpack your conversion story. I got to say, Mike, like these, these kinds of stories where somebody really digs deeply into, I mean, comes from a place of deep faith, deep, deep Christian faith, digs deeply into uh, the Catholic Church, decides to convert for, for various reasons. These are always such interesting stories because, again, here's a person who's thought things through. You haven't stumbled into the Catholic Church. You didn't become Catholic to, to marry a Catholic spouse or a Catholic, you know, you did, or, or did a job at a Catholic employer or something weird like that, right? The, this is a story, and I love these ones, of somebody seeking after Christ and, and digging down and finding uh, that Christ is... is be best followed in, in the Catholic Church and becoming Catholic. So why don't I step back before I do more damage and let you just tell your story, and we'll stop along the way and unpack things as, as we go, uh, and it'll be a good one, I think. So thanks, Mike. Tell us your story. All right. Well, again, thank you, Keith. Um, it's really an honor to be here, and, uh, you know, it has been a very interesting journey. So as you mentioned at the at the beginning in the intro, I... Grew up going to Evangelical Free Church. Uh, they were pretty big in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area um, early before I was born and then uh, after I was born. And they've, um, they really left a, a big mark on me. I mean, I was taught from a very early age uh, the basics of the gospel story, that uh, man has fallen, that man is sinful, all of us are sinful, and that we all need a Savior, that Jesus died for us. 
Um, and I accepted that at a very early age. I, I kind of estimated probably around age five is the first time I prayed a sinner's prayer. And um, for those who are evangelicals, they know what that means. It means I, I wanted to be a Christian. I wanted to follow Jesus. And that was really one of the main focuses of my life, uh, really most of my life. Um, so then, you know, as an, as a elementary kind of early junior high kid, I spent a lot of time, you know, uh, trying to get better uh, at being a Christian. Um, I paid a lot of attention in Sunday school. I don't know if that (laughs) showed up externally, (laughs) but I learned a lot. I I mean, I learned a lot from my teachers. I had great teachers. My parents reinforced what I was learning in church. They reinforced that at home. And, um, you know, we listened to a lot of Christian radio. It was just, it was, my life was saturated with it. And, um, I, I kind of estimate, I might be overestimating my uh, self-motivation or discipline as a kid, but I would guess from maybe age 12 to, I don't know, 23 or so, most days, probably not every day, but most days I was reading my Bible a little bit. I was trying to journal, trying to pray. Um, I would read some, you know, devotional books every once in a while. And it was really, really, really important to me. Um, and so I guess fast forward, I, I go to, I go to college in, uh, 2007 and I chose Northwestern at the time, Northwestern college, um, in part because it was close to home and I had some friends and, um, some, some really important people in my life that were going to school nearby and I didn't want to go too far, but also, I mean, it was a great campus. It was beautiful. Um, a lot of really great people were there. Every time I visited, it was a lot of fun. I was really excited about, you know, getting a minor in Bible at the time, everybody got a certificate or a minor in Bible. And so I really wanted that as part of my, um, college years. In addition to, you know, getting, getting a, a degree so I could go get a good job, uh, like I ended up doing. So, um, shortly after college, my wife and I are married and I would say more than any other relationship that I had, our relationship was really based on the fact that we were Bible believing strong Christians and that we were, I felt like she was really living her faith. Um, and I think she felt like I was really living my faith. We were not, um, we were not, you know, just like falling all over ourselves when we first met each other. It was really this long process of getting to know each other and becoming more and more impressed with the person that we got to know. And, um, that is important as, uh, you know, like 10 years later, I'm going to tell my wife, I want to become Catholic. <laughs> Um, but you know, at the time, you know, I guess I'll, I'll back up a little bit and just say that both my parents were to some degree raised, uh, within the Catholic church. Uh, my mom became a Protestant when she was in college and, um, my dad, you know, sometime in his childhood, his whole family started going to a more charismatic, uh, Protestant church. And my parents met at a, at a Protestant uh, charismatic Bible school. So, you know, there was some Catholicism in my family line and I learned to have a respect for the Catholic church. My dad is a history buff. He's really into church history. He studied 
um, church history. He taught church history Bible study classes at our church at times. And so I learned some of the names of, you know, Athanasius, Irenaeus, some of these weird names that no one else really knows about in the evangelical world, Tertullian, um, obviously St. Augustine. And I was kind of interested in philosophy. So, you know, when, when I would, you know, ask him what he was reading about or what he was going to teach on, he would tell me a little about it. So I learned very little. I wasn't too motivated to, to learn any of that on my own, but it was all just, it was kind of familiar and a healthy distance and a healthy respect. Um, at the same time, you know, as most kids who were raised in the nineties and two thousands in the evangelical world, there were plenty of Jack chick tracks that taught me about <laughs> yes. how, uh, you know, the Pope is the antichrist and, um, that the Catholic church is leading people straight to hell. And, you know, lots of, you know, lots of anti-Catholic stuff was around too. So it was kind of confusing to, to think, you know, to know the historical fact that the Catholic church was the first church. Um, and that at some point the Protestants recovered the true faith um, was kind of my assumption that somewhere in the 1500s, that's what happened. And I was, I was pretty content with that, but every time um, I found a difficult passage, I would kind of want to know more. Um, I took a class toward the, in my senior year at Northwestern called uh, New Testament Use of the Old Testament. And there was a lot of really interesting stuff and I was so disappointed how few answers I had as to like some of these difficult passages. Um, I can't think of one particularly off the top of my head. Oh, for, for instance, like the Virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Um, you know, there's five different points of view in the Protestant world about whether or not Isaiah actually intended Mary and Jesus in, in when he was saying that. Anyway, you know, there's just all this analysis going on in the, in the Protestant world, and there's no, no real way to sort out who's right. It ultimately, I realized, you know, through that, I love that study. It was a great study. Um, but I started to realize, you know, uh, some of my favorites, John Piper, uh, arch Calvinist, local pastor in Minneapolis. So I was going to his church most of college. And N.T. Wright, Anglican, uh, I think he's a bishop, um, going at it over justification. Well, I, I really appreciated that. N.T. Wright focused so much on the resurrection of the body and how bodily resurrection was central to, to St. Paul's gospel to the, in, in the Roman context. And it was encouraging to me. It was like, Hey, yeah, our bodies are going to raise again. Like you don't need to quit. Like it's going to pay off in the end. But then my favorite pastor, uh, John Piper is going after him about something totally different. And it's just like, I respect both these guys. Like, who do I decide is right? And how do I, as like Mr. Minor in Bible, um, <laughs> studying to become, wondering if I want to be a doctor or PA or one of the other things, like how do I have time to figure out who's right? Um, and so I think eventually I just kind of drifted away from the doctrine of sola scriptura. Um, I had some personal things in my life shortly after we married. We were married in 2012 both of us to graduate college and it was just a hard time. Uh, my friend group, my Bible study, uh, guys who we had kind of a do it yourself sacrament of confession where we would hold each other accountable to like literally everything. Um, 
we'd tell each other all of our sins and, um, you know, try to encourage each other to do better the next time and that God forgives us. And it was amazing time during college and lots of encouragement. And then that all fell apart. And then, you know, being married the first year is generally just difficult, uh, merging two lives together and, you know, uh, trying to figure out my career path and not really having much direction. It just all kind of started to fall apart. And that, that made me mad at God. And I just was like, you know what, forget this. I just, I don't think I need this church thing, at least not right now. Like, I can't say that God doesn't exist. I I wanted to make that leap, but I couldn't. Um, but I did say, you know, I don't think I need this right now. And it's just making more more, more upset, more frustrated, more angry, and more depressed. Um, and so that, I mean, that was a big, that was a big hit both to our marriage um, because, you know, like a few months into marriage, I'm like, yeah, I don't really care what church we go to. Like we've, we found a good one. People are nice. I'll, I'll go with you, I guess. But like, I just, I just didn't care anymore. I was just so upset that everything had fallen apart and there was no, there's nowhere to turn. Um, and so, you know, through that process, and I think a lot of people do this when, when they're struggling especially in the evangelical world, a lot of them turn to politics. And I, um, again, I couldn't deny that God existed. I, I didn't turn my back on everything I once believed, but um, I was just frustrated. So I, I started reading these conservative American opinion journalists, um, like Ross Douthat writes for the New York Times. He's a, he's a Catholic convert. Um, Michael Brendan Doherty, he's now at National Review. He was at a smaller publication at the time. Matthew Walther, uh, Rod Dreher, former Catholic, now Orthodox, they would write so beautifully about these old liturgical-based churches, and they'd write beautifully about architecture and how it calls us to something higher and speaks, teaches us something um, maybe unspoken. And uh, it just kind of started seeping into me at first, like this idea about the beauty and the transcendence of the Orthodox church and of the Catholic church and even Anglican church and Presbyterian church. I mean, it was just so much, so much older and and more transcendent than my non-denominational movement that, you know, we were kind of hopping around in. And uh, I don't know at what point exactly this happened, but as I started to kind of sympathize with these Turns out they're all traditional Latin mass, like super conservative Catholics. Um, (laughs) There's like a disproportionate number of them writing for conservative outlets. But um, I didn't know this as I was reading them at the time, but they would talk about, say, abortion, or they talk about divorce and remarriage. The Synod on the Family was going on, I think it was like 2014. And uh, I was reading about this thinking, man, they're dealing with the same issues that the evangelical churches that I attended we're dealing with like divorce and remarriage and child, you know, multi, you know, this, these blended families and all this, all this really difficult stuff that in my upbringing, it was clear, like God hates divorce. Like you shouldn't get divorced except for in cases of adultery, but that wasn't what was actually being practiced. And there was like, no, there was no discipline. There was no way for the, there was no recourse for the church. It, we read all about church discipline um, in, in the new Testament, but 
I just, I didn't see a way. I didn't even see a way that my pastors could execute discipline because they get fired <laughs> the, or the church would split <laughs> or something, you know, and then they wouldn't have a job. And so again, it wasn't like there wasn't one particular issue, but all these social issues that are affecting every church started to pile up. And then someone wrote in one of these articles I was reading that every Protestant denomination said that contraception was immoral until 1930. And then it was just one church at one time for very narrow circumstances. They said, okay, maybe in these very limited circumstances, contraception is okay. 1930 Lambeth conference, the Anglican church. And it, something really bothered me about that because again, like I said earlier, I believed that we had the true and ancient faith that somehow the Catholic church had abandoned that, the true faith of the scriptures. And then I realized that like this really important thing, you know, we're always fighting about sexual ethics at the time in the conservative world, you know, gay marriage was a really big deal at the time. Um, all those marriage amendments are going around. Um, Obviously, abortion is, has been a big deal for a long time. And I'm looking at that thinking, my grandparents were alive when this changed. Yeah. And that that's like, we're talking about trying to go back to the Acts 2 church. Well, what if, what if the Acts 2 church thought contraception was immoral? <laughs> and that in no circumstance could it be used? I mean, that's a pretty big deal. It's explicitly scripture but i mean these Catholic guys are saying there's this document the dedicating it was written like first generation from the apostles and <laughs> what was i going to do with that and how did this happen how did it change so fast it really it really just shook the core um of my belief structure and i just wondered like it, it came back to like epistemology what how do you know what you know how do I know this is true anymore? If if something so important could change so quickly in two generations, what else what else has changed? And that that's really what just kind of started me on the path of looking at it. So um, around that time, I guess I started I started again appreciating it more, and not just really a healthy respect, but being like. Yeah, I think these guys are legit. At least the TLM guys, like <laughs> they really seem to have. They're be, they're onto something that, and and they speak with this confidence. Like, no abortion is immoral. I don't need to play word games to convince anybody. It's just wrong. Like elective abortion, it, it's just not okay. And we didn't talk like that in the evangelical world. It, again, it was like, let's always think of the best strategy to be the most winsome. Because we have the truth on our side, we want people to come to the truth. I mean, it was all very well intended, but I think the strength and the backbone that I just saw, I I like intuited through reading these guys and how they talked about moral issues, I just, I was really impressed. And so it kind of just spoke to my, it spoke to my soul first and opened, opened me up. And then I started it really probably wasn't until like 2018 where I really decided to, okay, look, let's look at this. So, um, as, as I, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, and as you said in the bio, like 
2014's the Synod on the Family. I'm reading about contraception, all these all these other issues um, that the Catholic Church is dealing with. I'm getting I'm impressed that at least the Catholic Church has a mechanism for enforcing their rules um, and encouraging the faithful to to come back and repent. and And it just seemed more like the church discipline that you read about in the gospel in the in the epistles of Saint Paul. Um, so then twenty. 14 is about the time we moved down to Arizona, 2016. Um, I'm starting a fellowship for critical care down there. We're kind of looking at career, and, and we had another big move. And so we changed churches a couple times in Phoenix, and each time we tried to change churches, I was like, hey, maybe we should go to Catholic Church, huh? Like, let's just check it out. Let's see. At the time, I was like, this, this whole Mary thing's a big problem. Like, I don't know how to explain it. Um, I'm not going to go there because I don't want this Catholic church to be wrong. I just want to keep respecting it. Um, so let's just keep finding, let's just keep feeling our way through this. Um, so she wasn't super, she wasn't really interested in that. Um, we did go to Syrian Orthodox liturgy. It was like two hours, mostly in Arabic, (laughs) lots of incense. The people were amazing. They were so nice and generous. Like they invited us to stay for potluck afterwards and, um, Someone, you know, I, I had this inkling, like, I was like, I don't think we're supposed to go up for communion. Um, so we stayed back, but then like someone turned around and handed some bread to us afterwards and like invited us that they could tell we had no idea what we were doing. It. We're probably not Orthodox. Um, but anyway, it, it was kind of interesting, but my wife was like, yeah, we're not doing that. That was cool. But like, we're not doing that again. I don't understand anything that just happened there. And I'm like, yeah, neither do I. And they even had like this 20 page liturgy guide you know, for the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. And I was like, this is so cool. I don't get any of this. <laughs> um, so I, I think it was 2015, 2016. Um, two things that were really groundbreaking again in my, in my, in my thinking. One, a writer that Rod Dreher was writing a lot about before he released the Benedict Option uh, was James K. Smith, and he's a professor from Calvin College um, in Michigan, and he wrote a book called You Are What You Love, and I was super intrigued by everything Dreher was writing about it, and I read it, and it was it was mind-blowing. Yeah. He, have you read it? Yeah, yeah. Actually, there's a lost podcast that me and John Mark Gordai began, Episode one was about that book. Never released this podcast. No way. It's, it's hidden, but yeah, a big fan of that book. Yeah. Yeah. Very, uh, yeah. I love it. It's it. Yeah. It was, it was world changing for me. Um, he just did such an amazing job illustrating how our habits teach us yeah, yeah. something, whether it's true or false. So if we have good habits, they teach us false things or good things. And if we have bad habits, they teach us bad things. And he talks about like the liturgy of the mall, the shopping mall (laughs) and how it just trains us in consumerism. And again, he, he transposed the images and the, and the sights and the sounds of the shopping mall from like what a cathedral does. And I I remember like touring the cathedral, St. Paul's a kid and just, being again mystified at it, but remembering that from like as a little kid, and then him translating that to, oh, you do this every time you go to the Mall of America. Yeah. 
like it shocked me. And so then I started to, and then, you know, we talk about ordering your day around prayer, ordering your day around God and teaching your body to worship God, not just your soul. You're, and, and using the phrase brain on a stick. And again, that just resonated so much with how I was operating that I was like a brain on a stick. I, I didn't know what to do. It's like Ricky Bobby and tell that I don't know what to do with my hands when I'm worshiping. I, but he just, he made it so clear, like how the layout of the worship service teaches us about God, how the architecture of the church teaches us about God. And, um, I, that was one of the, that was one of the biggest turning points was I realized I don't think I could be satisfied doing the same thing anymore. Um, I was in a great church at the time. I had a great pastor at the time, had a great small group at the time. I was back, you know, wanting to pray, wanting to read my Bible, wanting to go deep with guys and, and, you know, again, kind of go back to what we were doing before we were married. But I, I just, I didn't know what to do anymore. It was like, um, it was good, but it was also kind of confusing at the same time. Uh, 2015, again, I'm kind of interested in politics at this time. I'm just reading about it. But at the same time, Donald Trump announces his run for presidency. And um, that was a confusing time to be a conservative in America. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My first political memory is the Bill Clinton scandal. I was probably like nine when that all started. And I just remember the phrase character matters, character matters, character matters. And then, so what that would have been like 16 years later or something, Donald Trump's out there saying, I've never asked God for forgiveness. I'm a Christian. There's no, there's no like concern that he's three times divorced and openly cheated on his wife. And, you know, the pornography and everything else that he's participated in. It's just like the evangelical world didn't care about character anymore, at least not like that part of character. And it was, I'm realizing now I was more naive about politics than I probably should have been. But also it was very confusing because the people that I was looking to for leadership were very divided and kind of the same thing as before. Like, how do I decide who's right? I mean, do I go with the pro-Trump people, the anti-Trump people, the middle of the ground? I'll vote for Trump if I have to people. Um, and so it was all just very, it was all happening at the same time. It was all very confusing. And um, again, it just made me like long for a structure that could help me deal with this. And it's not like the Catholic church didn't, you know, have its problems when Trump came on the scene either. It's just, there was at least somewhere to go. Um, And it wasn't up to me to decide who was the right person to go to necessarily. Like I could pick any pastor I wanted. I mean, the other, the other one that was big at the time was Jen Hatmaker, uh, a mom blogger who was huge. Um, And she came out in favor of gay marriage around that time. And uh, she was followed by tons of like really 
you know, engaged evangelical women. And uh, there was a nice article that came out by Trish Harris Warren, um, who is an Anglican priest, female Anglican priest. And she just wrote, again, uh, she wrote very beautifully about how, like, I am a female Anglican priest. Realize I am not like this uber conservative person, okay? (laughs) But I think it's bad that there's no structure, that no one can say anything to Trish Harris Warren. She could literally, she could, or I'm sorry, to Jen Hatmaker. No one could say anything to Jen Hatmaker because she's, she's out on her own. She's an island and she has a following and she could lead people off a cliff. And she's like, this article, this very article is subject to my bishop. I have to, I have to be in obedience to some degree to an authority. And like, I can't just jump off the deep end without, without a second thought. Like I have to, I, I'm at least being held accountable. I'm like, maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> and she's like, remember, I'm no, I'm no anti-feminist. I'm a female Anglican priest. And I was just like, man, she's right. <laughs> like, uh, so anyway, all that's happening at the same time, and I'm just starting to admire the structure of the Catholic Church. So 2017, we move up to Rochester. I'm starting my career for real as a PA, um, Rochester, Minnesota, and we're looking for churches. We're two blocks away from a Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, very liturgical. There's vestments. There's an altar. Very beautiful. Um, but there's no child care, and we had... Uh, See, at the time would have been a kid that just turned two and a kid that was nine months old. And I worked like every third Sunday in the hospital. And uh, my wife's like, there's no way we're going somewhere with no child care. Like, I'm not wrestling these two kids at this church that <laughs> you want to go to. And I, I'm like, I'm cool that I would go if you want, if you were there every, every week. But so we, we skipped out on that one. Uh, we did visit a Catholic church down there, a uh, very beautiful building. Um, it was on Mother's Day, so you can imagine that the sermon mentioned Mary a lot. And um, I was like outside with our nine-month-old, and my wife's like sitting there with the three-year-old like, what is going on? Like, why aren't they talking about Jesus? Like, Mary's cool, but like, why aren't we talking about Jesus at all? Um and so that was kind of the end of it. It was like, okay, we, we went to the Orthodox church once we went to Catholic church once, like, let's just find something that we can all agree on now. And my wife was very indulgent, but, um, it really wasn't the right fit at the time. I just didn't have, I didn't quite have the conviction either to, to be like, I need to do this. So we, we were at a really great reformed Baptist, um, church plant and they had a very similar vision to what I had where um, they wanted to be liturgical about it. They, they, you know, the dream was like to buy one of these old, beautiful buildings in Rochester, that one of these old, beautiful church buildings where like everybody there is 90 years old and they're maybe getting low on revenue and they might want to sell to a good, you know, young, thriving church. (laughs) Unfortunately, it didn't work out when we were there. Um, But, I mean, they did a great job with what... um, with what very limited resources they had. And they just like, they took church membership very seriously and they took the sacrament of baptism very seriously. And, uh, you know, from a Baptist perspective, but again, it was like, okay, this is, this is what we want. And so Beck, my wife, um, 
And I really, really benefited a lot from that. And just learning like the, that rhythm, the rhythm that James Smith was talking about and that Trish Harris Warren talks about of, of prayer. And again, you know, centering the day and centering Sunday and centering the worship service on God, both with our bodies and with the tempo and with the rhythm of the service. And so it was really good. Um, so that's maybe like, I think late 2017, early mid, mid 2018, um, probably in the fall of 2018, for whatever reason, I stumble upon Matthew Leonard's stuff online and I'm like, wait, there, there are Protestant converts to Catholicism. Like I'd heard about, I'd heard about a professor at Notre Dame years ago, um, who converted, who was a big Protestant. I, I forget who exactly it was. Um, and I remember my dad saying, yeah, there's been a few, a few like big name academic Protestants who've read their way into church, into the church. And that's, that's a phrase I remember as a child. And so then I hear about Matthew Leonard. I'm like, Oh, I wonder if he read his way into the church. And so, you know, I start looking into his stuff, see that he has a podcast and I think, okay, um, I can't do the Anglican church, like founding it on Henry the eighth and, and all that stuff, you know, the, with St. Thomas More and everything that went down there. I'm like, they may be right about everything in theology, but I can't start with them. <laughs> um, so then there's Orthodox or Catholic. I'm like, I don't know. I'm still, I'm kind of a Westerner. Like I, I, I don't know a lot about the schism there, but I just, I was like, I'm not sure I, I'm, I understand the Orthodox thing to, to really want to go for it. So let's start with Catholic and you know, the mindset of, someone who works in an emergency department or even in intensive care unit as I was at the time is whenever you see a sick patient, you go down the list of the worst possible things that could be happening and you rule them out. And, and the idea is like, I need to make sure there's not something life threatening going on. And that's, that's like my job. And then if I can't find something life threatening, I'll, I'll ask for help finding out what's actually going on. So, <clears throat> With the Catholic Church, I said, okay, um, what's the worst possible thing that could be going on? Uh, idolatry. <laughs> so <laughs> let's, let's make sure they're not worshiping Mary. And if they're not worshiping Mary, um, well, I don't know what the next issue is, but I, I feel like they're probably worshiping Mary, and then I can just be done. Like, <laughs> that I don't need to worry about ever becoming Catholic, and I can just, you know, respect them from afar and go on with my life and be a Presbyterian or something. Um, so I listen, I find a few podcasts from Matthew Leonard, a few from Scott Hahn, no conversion story is complete without Scott Hahn being mentioned. Um, and, uh, it was, it was titled next level queenship of Mary on Matthew Leonard's next, uh, uh, on his podcast, art of Catholic podcast. And, uh, he's interviewing a guy who is a Protestant former Protestant pastor turned uh, Catholic there. He's interviewing this former Protestant pastor about a former Protestant pastor who wrote a book called surprised by scripture, how the Bible made me Catholic. And I'm just like, what is going on? I thought this was going to be about Mary. And this is about how like all these Protestant pastors are becoming Catholic. And like this, what the guy who wrote the book is like, he was a reformed minister and, 
then he read the Bible more and became Catholic. Like, how is this possible? What is going on? It just, again, it, it just kind of shook me up. And then they start going into like, okay, here's why we call Mary the queen of heaven. And let's go into second Kings and Bathsheba going into King David. And there's, or I'm sorry, Bathsheba going to talk to King Solomon and, uh, on behalf of Absalom and, and he brings up a throne and she sits by him and then he bows to her. And I'm like, Oh geez, I'm, I remember reading this and just thinking, this is really weird. Like, why is he bowing down to his mom? Like she's not the queen. Like he has 800 Queens. Right. And then they're like, no, no, this, that's not how that worked. Like if you have 800 wives in the ancient near East um, for the King, like the, the mother, the mother is how you identify um you know, who the king is and then who the most important woman in the kingdom is. So in the ancient Near East, the, the great lady is is the queen, the, the mother of the king. And I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> this is not going a good direction. I think I'm about to buy this. Like, and um, then they went into, they went into um, a few other things, how like in the Gospel of John, says in the beginning and then the next day and the next day and the next day and then three days later four days later and so on the seventh day is the wedding at cana and mary is the new eve (laughs) and because we all know jesus is the new adam like it explicitly says that well who's the new eve what's the lady the only woman who's named at the wedding on the seventh day at the completion of the new creation, the new covenant. I'm like, Oh no. So within 50 minutes I went from, I was out doing yard work, listening (laughs) to this. And I'm like, how am I going to become Catholic and stay married? (laughs) At least like even have a chance at happily being married. And, um, for the first time in my life in some issue that I thought was important, I just, decided not to do anything and, and be patient and pray and wait and just do more study. And I figured, well, if this really is the true church, as I now suspect it is, um, I need, it's going to be true in two years. It's going to be true in five years. It's going to be true in 20 years. If that's what it takes to be sure, to be sure enough to put my family's unity at risk um, so I started talking to Becky about it a little more somewhat, but I, I, I just, I was so worried. I had done so much pushing in my life, in our marriage for, you know, little things and medium sized things that I really, really wanted that I knew that that could backfire. And in something so important, I didn't want to ruin it. Um, so I decided I would just pray and keep studying, maybe try to find another issue where I could say, oh, yeah, see, the Catholic Church, they, this is where they went astray. They don't have this right. Um, and in that process, I found the Coming Home Network, and their website was just a treasure trove of um, questions that I didn't even know to ask, answered from a Protestant perspective in Protestant language that, I could understand, you know, quoting scripture over and over, you know, all over the place. And um, so then 
due to some some various issues, we wanted to get back home and get back closer to my wife's family, who's still all up in the Twin Cities where we grew up. And um, we were actually up in the cities, staying at her parents' house. I was interviewing for a job, and I sat my wife down. I said, "You know, Beck, I I'm not going to force you to do anything, but when we move, whenever that happens to be, in the next year, I." I think I need to start going to a Catholic church to really figure this out. I'm not saying I'm becoming Catholic, but like it's in my conscience at this point. Like if I delay any longer, I'm, I'm being disobedient to my conscience and to God. And I had no idea how that was going to go. I think at one point in the months before she had said something like, I am 0% interested in becoming Catholic or in going to a Catholic church. And knowing that I'd been praying, I said, Hey Mary, like if, if this is not idolatry to be praying to you, could you like, maybe this would be a sign. This would be a sign of God. (laughs) If my wife is open to this, that would be a sign. And I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to push her or try to influence her at all because I know I'll screw it up and get angry and it'll be a fight. And, um, she said, okay. Well, I don't think that we should bring our kids to two separate churches. I don't think that we should go to two separate churches. And so I will go with you until I can prove that it's heresy. (laughs) And I honestly, I could not believe it. I was like, we are doing this, aren't we? Like, this is, (laughs) here's that miracle I was asking for. Um. And yeah, so we moved up in 2020. Um, There's a church three doors down from my brother-in-law and we had been seeing it. He lived there for, for a long time. And uh, we, every time we come visit, we'd stay with him or hang out with him and, and his kids and his his wife. And every single day, no matter what kind of day it was Saturday, weekday, Sunday, there were cars in that parking lot at this Catholic church. And that just, that was not like anything I'd ever seen. All my Catholic friends growing up, I had no idea if they went to church ever. Um, other than Wednesday nights when they had to get confirmed. And, uh, I see this Catholic church and there's cars going in and out all the time. And I'm like, if we're going to, if we're going to have any chance of converting, we're going to the church where the people show up and where the people are really active. And there's like, I looked on their website and there's like Bible studies and there's like a charismatic group and there's, um, you know, all sorts of things that we want to see from our Protestant church. They're there, these ancillary ministries. And I'm like, okay, so we got to move near this church, at least close enough to drive there. And we're going to try coming in this way. And so I knew about RCA and my wife didn't. I invite the director of discipleship over to our house Sometime that summer, we moved in July, probably a few weeks later, I invited this the um, lady over and she's sitting on our front porch talking to us. And uh, my wife has no idea that we're signing up for like a nine month class. <laughs> <laughs> she's just like, okay, yeah, I mean, we'll learn a little more. That's fine. I'll come with you. And, and she's like, yeah, if Mike's coming in, I'll come in. And, and Jessica is just like, yeah, that's not how it works. <laughs> Like you need to make your own decision. Like if you believe it's true, you're welcome to attend, but you like can't become Catholic if you don't believe it. (laughs) 
And so long story longer, we go to um, our stay starting in September. By January, I'm telling my wife, you seem like you're more convinced about this than I am. And they started just with the foundations of the church, the foundation, who is God? Who is the Trinity? What is the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Um, and both of us, graduating from Northwestern, both of us having a Bible minor, um, are just in awe of the depth, the thoroughness. It's like we had this really great skeleton that just grew like these huge muscles and got skin and and fat. And it was just like, it was beautiful. The whole thing was, it just filled out. And um, thanks be to God, it was... Um, Never, it was not really a question for either of us by the time Lent rolls around. Like we're, we're pretty darn sure that this is what we're doing. And we have just been so, so, so blessed um, to be Catholic. I mean, the fact that Jesus is literally available to us every single day, his body and his blood. And, um, you know, the sacrament of confession has been amazing for us. And I guess on that note, one thing my wife, that was the thing she was most looking forward to. One thing we, we had our priest over after, um, or before we became Catholic, just, you know, to ask any questions. And um, my wife was like super like on board with, with the confession thing. And she started asking a question and he was kind of like, um, and she's like, no, no, no. I mean, like, this is really good. Like, but can you explain to me why, why I would con- confess to a priest? Because I know people are going to ask, but I'm, I'm like, I'm whole, wholeheartedly on board with this. Um, I was just like, this is so cool. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of us in a nutshell. And um, we've again, like I said, we've just been so grateful to be, to be Catholic. We just, I personally, I've just never felt so sure of my faith. And I feel like it's built on this foundation that I was given as a kid, this foundation of scripture and, um, you know, really thorough study of the scripture. Um, but, you know, a couple of things we, we realized as we were coming in, as we were thinking about it, after I told my wife about this, she's like, okay, well, I better start reading a little more, figuring this out with you. So we read, um, uh, is it? Peter Curry, um, born fundamentalist, born again, Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. David Curry, David Curry. Yeah. Um, so he, he just writes in such a beautiful way, understandable for an evangelical. Um, and we got to the part about the Eucharist and my wife's like, wait, Protestants don't believe that Jesus is really present in communion. (laughs) I was like, no, what do you mean? What do you, what are you, what are you implying here? She's like, well, what about, he says, I am the bread from heaven. He says, this is my, my body. This is my blood. Like it's in there. Why, why don't they believe it? I'm like, you're literally the only person in your church that believes that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like, I didn't, I didn't know there like the mechanics. Like, I just thought it was a mystery, but like, I thought we were, I thought we were really receiving the body and blood of the Lord. And I was like, okay, well, I guess you're more Catholic than you realize. <laughs> um, 
And the same thing with confession. Like she was just like, yeah, this makes so much more sense than what I've been doing. And I just love that. Like I can speak it out loud to somebody and, and really receive, receive forgiveness and healing and know and know that it's there. Um, so there've been so many things like that for us. Um, it's just been, it's just been crazy. And, and what's funny is it was, it was really scary as we were starting to go in and I was like, man, we might never ever be on the same page faith wise again. Yeah. And now we're, we've never been more on the same page yeah. faith wise. <laughs> and again, I just, I credit it, all glory to God on this one because truly I didn't, I didn't push, I didn't influence her. I didn't try to do anything until she had agreed to come. And then I was like, okay, here's a couple of resources I heard about that you might like. Um, and she's, I've just seen her come alive in her faith and just be so, so eager to, to learn and to grow. Um, Cause there's just so much, there's just so much. <laughs> I love your story for so many reasons. I, Least of all that there's so many parallels between our story, my wife and, and myself. And I think maybe the most one that jumps out at me the most is my own Marian intervention. Uh, when, my, when my wife and I were, were brokering this conversation, I've told us on the, on the show before, but of course, the uh, I did a similar thing, I think, to you where I kind of said, look, I, I think I've become Catholic. Here's what's going on. I think I'd actually called the church at that point and, and signed up for the classes and then told my wife, by the way, I'm becoming Catholic. I should have told her years, years prior. Oh, I should have told her earlier too. (laughs) Because like you guys, like we were on the same, like faith was central to our, our marriage, our life. Like we were, we were, we met in an evangelical student church. We got married in the family church that grew out of that student church. We'd served in every ministry you could in that church. Like we ended our time in that church serving in the married couples ministry. Like, like this was central to our to our faith or our marriage was our faith, right? And that shared faith. As so I was, I was terrified to tell her that I was thinking about this Catholic thing, and when I did, we had a big knockdown, drag him out fight. Not not a physical fight, but one of our biggest fights of our marriage. We didn't didn't fight a lot, but we had a big argument. And she went and slept downstairs. I, I don't, this doesn't seem very fair, but I got the bed somehow. And she went downstairs and, and slept downstairs somewhere. She was so angry. She just kind of stormed away. And I was just left there. And Mike, that was my first ever kind of, you know, prayer to Mary. I said, you know, Mary, if you're there, if this isn't idolatry, <laughs> could you, pl- could you please pray for me and somehow fix this? And I remember I, I'd heard about Mary, the undoer of knots. And I loved that. I love that idea of, okay, here's a great big knot I've gotten us into. How is this ever going to be undone? Like, and I saw, I think like you, I saw no way forward. I saw no way we'd ever be on the same page ever again. And it was this terrifying, how can we make this work? We had a, a son on the way. We wanted more kids after that. How could we ever make this thing work being on different pages faith-wise? It was so central for us. And I prayed that prayer that night, and I, again, not knowing if, if Mary was there listening, if this was the thing I could do, if I was committing adultery. And the next morning, my wife wakes up, and, and I see her, and she goes, and she goes, actually, did you know that, you know, you told me this about the Catholic faith, but actually, did you know they believe this, and this, and this, and this, and this? And I, and I, and I kind of like that. And it turns out that I'd gone to sleep, like a very restless sleep, praying, and, and really in, in, in turmoil, she went downstairs and went on the computer and was up all night researching the Catholic Church. Ended up knowing more than I knew on these certain things we've been talking about, you know, in, in the argument. 
that, that I had known. And, and I thought, wow, Mary, like there's an answer. Like, I think you're praying for me. <laughs> because, and that, that for me was the first time I kind of prayed to Mary. And that then made Mary an easy sell for me in the Catholic Church. Because I was like, okay, well, obviously there's something here to this because here's my first time tr- asking for her intercession. And she answers it in this amazing kind of powerful way. Right. So I love that that features in in your story too. Oh, that's incredible. And of course the books you read too on, on Mary, like some of those books that, that talk about the typology and, and where she comes from and the, and the new Eve. I'm thinking of Brant Petrie. Scott Hahn has a book, a bunch of these, a bunch of those books on Mary kind of came out around the same kind of time when I was, on my way into the church, and like you said, the, just the, the, the scripture that you know as as a kid that you learned like growing up, right, suddenly comes alive in ways you hadn't expected before, right? And it's that that foundation of scripture that you received as an evangelical that allows you to act, to access and understand these things, right? You go, oh yeah, I know that in scripture, I know that, and suddenly you read them in a different way, a more ancient way, you could argue, mm-hmm. right, and, and find these amazing things like this, right? That's that's amazing. Yeah, no, that's exactly. I think after after I listened to Matthew Leonard interviewing, I think it was Dr. John Bergsma, um, a good friend of the show. I should say. Yes, yeah, I saw you've had him on. <laughs> Lovely. Guy. Um, he, you know, after that one where they're like running through all these scriptures that converted their friend, yeah. um, or actually no, that converted Dr. Bergsma, then. Then they're talking about Mary and, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, how it all ties together, making sense of passages I'd read but never really understood. And then I listen to Brant Petrie doing the same thing. That's the next one. Brant Petrie blows your mind on Mary. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I mean, this, it it just never was on my radar that the Catholic Church interpreted the scriptures even more faithfully even more thoroughly than any Protestant. You know, I like, I had that, the the Bible's a Protestant book kind of thing. Like the Catholics might do the structure, they might do the architecture and the art and the tradition better, but the Protestant Bible, that's, or the Bible, that's the Protestant book. And then when they start going through all these things, I'm like, they're making more sense of the Bible than I've ever been able to do before. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so that, I, I think... And that was another one that, too, that got my wife when she's reading um, Dr. Curry's book about Scripture and how he says, you know, if you go to a a really strong Bible-believing church, they might read, like, one full chapter of Scripture on Sunday. But the the Catholic Church reads four readings every Sunday. They read more Scripture every single Mass (laughs) than, than Protestant church does corporately yeah. maybe not privately but corporately they read more scripture than than any protestant church and i was like oh that's that's a good point that's that's that seems important <laughs> so you can't say they're like neglecting scripture um so yeah it it's uh really every question that i've had about the catholic church yeah. has been answered to satisfaction and better yeah yeah and you mentioned too before the idea of authority and the idea that of of discipline and correcting people and, and ideas, right? That that too for me was so central. And I brought that question. I mean, Matthew eighteen, Jesus tells the disciples how to resolve disputes in the church, right? And I always thought 
I, I couldn't figure out in my evangelical framework. We, we were a non-denominational church for the last bit of our, our career as, as Protestants. And especially in that case, with no denomination to, to fall back on, especially, I, I, we thought, well, how can you ever enforce discipline? And, and like, like you were wrestling with, we were also, our church as a, as a body, wrestling with the idea of same-sex marriage and what to do with this. Uh, we didn't really have a, a belief statement on that in our church. We had we were non-denominational. So that became a question, well, how do we wrestle this out? How do we figure this out? And the question for me then became, became well, if people in this church don't agree, and that ended up happening, people didn't agree with what the church finally decided upon, what, what recourse is there? Because Jesus says, here's how you do it, right? You bring one more person, and if they disagree, you bring a third and bring it to the church, and then if you disagree with the church, then you are outside of the church, I thought, well, how can you be outside of this church if I can just go down the street and, and, and join the church over here? I later learned that Dr. Bergsma had the same kind of questions, and he was pastoring a church like this, right? But I brought this question to my, my, my pastor at the time, and I said to him, look, how do we resolve this in our church? And I was earnestly trying to understand this. And I remember not his answer, but kind of the brush off. And he was a great guy. He was a good family friend. He'd married us. We'd known him and his wife for a very, very, very long time. But to him, it didn't seem important how to solve that dispute. It didn't seem an important issue because, well, it, just, it can't work in the Protestant church, right? So obviously, it's not an important thing, and, and I don't know what the, what the answer is, but it can't be important because it's not workable. And I thought, that's not, that's not okay. Like, there's got to be, there's got to be, a, if Jesus says this is what you do, there's got to be a way to do that somewhere. So where does where does that exist, right? Yeah. Of course, we find that in the Catholic Church, and we find dissenters in the Catholic Church, people who say, "Well, I'm Catholic, but I believe this about abortion or same sex marriage or the Eucharist or or whatever it might be." You can find that in the church, but you also have the framework to say, "No, no, no. Actually, you're outside the church if you believe that. You can call yourself Catholic." But here's what the church actually teaches that you must submit to if you want to be, be Catholic, right? We didn't have anything like that in the Protestant church, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and it came to it came to a point for me too where I it became more important. It came to the front where I, I realized, no, I I really do believe that Jesus came to found a church. Yeah. I mean, the, the Bible's pretty clear about that. Like, he tells Peter, on this rock I will build my church. You know, he doesn't ever say anything about writing his words down. Um, and, you know, Paul talks about the church and, you know, church discipline. And, again, same thing. Don't don't associate with those who won't repent of their serious sins. And I'm like, well, how do again, how do you do this? Um, knowing that Jesus didn't come to write a book. He came to found a church, and the book really, really helps us. The book is the Word of God. The book is, like, the closest thing we can get to verbatim sometimes, what he said. Um, but ultimately, there's, there is a body of people who are in, and there's a body of people who are out, and how do we decide? And I just wasn't... I saw the radical kind of individual autonomous um, morality that's going on in the culture just seeping into the to the evangelical world, and I didn't see a way to resist it. Yeah, 
because there wasn't there wasn't like a foundation. So that's partly why I was like, oh, okay, well, what about the Anglicans? They at least have a structure, and Presbyterians have a structure, and Lutherans have a structure. So why don't we try some of that? And um, again, even in the course of that, realizing how many things Luther believed that the Catholic Church believes, and no evangelicals believe. Um, like the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and infant baptism. Um, I mean, there's, there's just a number of things that I, um, I, I could never get a satisfactory answer. And I knew I wouldn't in, again, in non-denominational Christianity, as amazing as it was, it, I mean, it, it saved my life um, from childhood on it, it, put me on a good, on a beautiful, good path. There's so many beautiful, amazing people that are, are really encouraging to me even now. Um, but like at the end of the day for me, I just, I couldn't resist what I was seeing, um, in the Catholic church. And I just, I just needed, I needed the full thing. Yeah. What's cool that you mentioned about the, the idea that you're in this church at one point that was really trying to discover kind of ancientest things, right? Looking to, to buy an ancient church building. I can, t- two things. The first thing is I, I met a friend who was an Anglican ordinary priest. So he became an Anglican priest that became Catholic. His whole congregation joined the Catholic church with him. And they wow. boasted they had the oldest new church in the city because they, they took the church building as well. They're, they're gifted it by the Anglican congregation. And so it became the newest oldest church in town, this Catholic church of Anglicans who, who joined the Catholic church. So I always wow. loved, loved that story. That's cool. But, but uh, we were in a similar kind of place of, in, in our non-denominational church. It was funny, we met in a rec center for years and years and moved into, again, found, a, found an aging Lutheran congregation who wanted to lease their building to us and moved in and shared the space with them. So we'd have a 9 a.m. service, they'd meet at like 10 so we kind of shared the worship space. And I remember how transformative that was for me, being in a, an old, a, a space that was meant for worship, for one thing. This wasn't a really old church. It was built probably in like the 40s or something. It wasn't super old. It wasn't like the 1840s, the, the 1940s. But it was a, a space that was made for worship. Like it was made for the human voice to sing in the, mm-hmm. right, in the nave. It was, ma- it was made for, there was an actual, you know, there was an altar. There was a space for like, these liturgical things around. And the Lutheran priest wore Roman collar and vestments. And it was the first time I had I'd kind of encountered that kind of up close. And that at the same time as uh, James K. Smith is writing his book about liturgy and the idea of, of what, you know, you are what you love and these habits you form. I began thinking about, okay, well, what liturgy are we making as non-denominational Christians? What are these Lutherans doing? What, what are the, the Catholics doing? I remember I wrote a blog article about this. I hadn't even been to a mass before, but I thought, well, which is the more safe liturgy that's less like me? The one that's been existing, you know, the, the Catholic liturgy that has been existing since the beginning, like, you know, the Didache lays out some liturgy in there for us. Or this thing that I'm doing as, in my non-denominational church that we're kind of making up as we go along. Like, you know, we it kind of looks like the Catholic liturgy, we've taken out a lot, you know, the Eucharist and do that once a month kind of thing. We call it communion and it's just, it's, it's just bread. But I remember asking myself, kind of in this, in this thought experiment that I then put on the internet because it was the, you know, that was the era of, of, of the blog on, on my MySpace, I think, or something, working through like, you know, which liturgy 
is safer? Like, which one can I can I feel more comfortable, uh, you know, celebrating? And for me, it was it was the Catholics. I thought, well, the Catholics have a more claim to this ancient liturgy than us over here, kind of reinventing things. And so that you know that experience kind of began to shift me towards thinking about well, th- things that were outside of my my normal comfort zone, right? Maybe there's something to do. Maybe there's something more over here with this this ancient liturgy. Than what we're doing over here. That was kind of a you know the beginning of something for me. I, mm. <laughs> I think that's yeah. That's um. I mean that really resonates with me. I, I think regarding especially the Eucharist. Um. I I really appreciated how these TLM Catholics spoke with su- wrote with such reverence in these like publications about about the body and blood of Christ. And it started to just kind of wake me up to like, no, this is really serious. Like he didn't, he, no matter what you, if you believe that it's, it's truly the body and blood of Christ or not. Um, I remember hearing a sermon, John Piper one time um, saying what Jesus was saying was the most offensive thing he could possibly have said to that Pharisees. Drinking blood was literally like last on the list of things you could do. And so no matter what, even if it's a strong metaphor or not, you can't approach this nonchalantly. And I think, I think it was in the context of like, you know, examining our consciences before we go to receive communion and, you know, Again, take it seriously. Um, that started to grow in me as I read these Catholic guys. And there's one point, I, I don't know if you're on the internet for the uh, BRB joining ISIS meme. Uh, and <laughs> whenever some like cultural decay happened, these conservative commentators would be like, BRB joining ISIS. So my, my friend tells me about this church plant that they have in, in a small town and everything's closed on Sundays and someone forgot the grape juice for communion. And so they're like, Oh shoot, what are we going to do for communion? It's like our one communion that we're going to do for like the month or whatever. And, um, so he's telling me the story, he's laughing and, uh, he says, Oh, so he went and got like, purple Gatorade or pink Gatorade from the gas station. And he's, he's laughing. And I, I, my face must've been betraying my disgust with this. Cause I was just like, you're laughing at this. Like, and he's like, it's just a symbol. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think you can do that. Like the grape juice is a stretch enough. Like, Oh man, purple Gatorade. That's just, I think when you go with unworthily, receiving the body and blood of our Lord. Like that's, that's gotta be it. And, but at the same time, like I can't fault him for that. I mean, that was, that was our theology technically. And, um, but that was a moment where I was like, BRB, I'm becoming Catholic like right now. (laughs) I can, I can do you one worse. And I heard a, I think it was a Christmas Eve sermon from a non-denominational pastor talking about, and somehow th- this came up. And I think in a way, I was listening to it because they were doing a series on 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 John, and they were around John 6, and I thought, I'm curious to hear what they say about, about John 6. And so I tuned in, and it was like a Christmas Eve service talking, and somehow this, this came up, I think. And the pastor literally said, oh, 
it's Jesus, what he means is he's giving all of us access to him and it's symbolic and it's everywhere and everything. And so I can just take a Coke and some Ritz crackers and do communion because it's just that accessible to me. And that's what, that's what Christ meant. And I thought, I, <laughs> what I thought I can't say on, on the air. Oh no. <laughs> like, but I was, I, I was just struck by the idea that like, this is taking the symbolic nature to an extreme, right? That it's, that it's just so symbolic. It's so it's so irrelevant what we use as the symbols. It could be anything. It could be Coke and, and, and Ritz crackers. But then you think of like uh, things that Paul wrote about communion, like t- you know, taking it worthily. And the, the things he says about, about how you have to be careful, th- those those warnings. And you think, like <laughs> gosh, if 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 we claim to as even juggles and and we did, I did certainly, really care for the Bible and carefully read it and be a Bible Christian. Some of these, some of those ideas are straying very far from a, a, a good reading of the Bible. We yeah. get into the, that, that territory, right? I, I, I experienced sitting through a, a, a service in a Baptist church where the where the, the pastor changed the words from from Corinthians. He said, "This is like my body," right when he when, when Paul is, is quoting Jesus. And I thought, wait a second, like. <laughs> You can't do that. Like you, 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 you're. This is your theology, sure, but you can't read that into scripture. Like you have to wrestle with, like, you know, what your wife said about believing this actually was the body and blood. Well, yeah, everybody in that congregation should believe that if they read the, the just the plain words of, of Christ, right? Yeah. Never mind adding something into that when you're when you're quoting scripture, reading a Bible in your hand, right? That's that's bonkers. Oh man. Yeah. That, and so that, the reason that was such an important moment, you know, that one of those extreme, you know, take, take the symbolism to the extreme moments was so important is I, I it was again, another uh, um, example of irresistible logic. Yeah. Like this is where it goes. Like John Calvin didn't believe that <laughs> Martin Luther certainly didn't believe that you know, about Coke and Ritz crackers or about yeah. purple Gatorade. I mean, they would have probably burned those guys at the stake, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, how, how could we resist it yeah. as American evangelicals? I just, I didn't see a way. And I just thought like, it's such a more faithful reading of scripture. And there's 2000 years of tradition around the world, East and West of believing that this has to be treated with such reverence because it is the body and blood of Christ. And um, again, that, excuse me, that reverence again, drew me in the reverence, the transcendence. um, It just, it drew my heart before I came around to the doctrine because like, this is so beautiful. It probably has to be true. Doesn't it? And like, it helps that it is exactly what Jesus said, but boy, the beauty just, that's what got me going the first at, at first. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot we could unpack here. I want to ask oh, you maybe, well, maybe one more question, and then sure. have you back again for ten more hours of, of conversation. Love <laughs> it, love it. But you mentioned confession as a, an evangelical, and then that experience, you know, coming around again as a Catholic. And I love that picture. Like that was again for me one of those things that as I was venturing as a student in university, thinking about my faith and deeply involved in this student church and in the small groups that kind of were fed off this church. 
And one of the things that I wrestled with was was confession. And I, I couldn't figure out why we weren't doing that in these churches, right? Because it was clear in Scripture, we should confess our sins to one another. This is in practice that, that we should do. And I couldn't figure out why we weren't doing that. And again, I looked into, well, who is doing that? And it was it was it was the it was the Catholics. I think in rare in rare situations, Anglicans have some kind of form of like communal uh, confession like that, but certainly not the exact the, the, the same the same kind of standard that the Catholic Church has. And again, I went, well, why are they? How are they more faithful to the Scriptures than us Bible Christians are? That was right confusing. But I love that you were you were doing that. You were trying to to do what Scripture told you to do, and interesting how that kind of falls apart but then i wonder if you can contrast that experience versus you know confession in in the catholic church because a lot of us long for what you were doing there but then mm-hmm. a lot of us long for the fulfillment of that in an actual confession where you can feel you, you know kind of ontologically that you are forgiven in, in different way than just saying it to your to your buddy so tell us first about the experience of of that kind of confession group and then how that's different or, or contrasted or fulfilled in, in reconciliation, that the, the sacrament. Mm. Yeah, so I guess what we were doing in college was we had a lot of really on-fire yeah. Christian men who were all struggling with basically the same thing. Yeah. Um, and we all wanted to be free of it. Like we'd read about our freedom in Christ. We'd read about you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we'd hear these testimonies about people being radically transformed, free of drugs, alcohol, everything, everything you could imagine yeah. in an instant. And we're like, well, we want some of that. So <laughs> maybe what we need to do is follow scriptures more closely. And it says, confess your sins to one another and you'll be healed. And, you know, maybe if some of us are sick, we need to confess our sins to each other. And like, it was amazing. It really was. Um, probably two or three years worth of like, even in the moment, like if we're, if we're really tempted to do something we know we're not supposed to do, text our buddies and then temptation like evaporates sometimes, sometimes not, but it was amazing. And so the accountability group turned into a confession group. Like then we'd be like, okay, well, you know, we might have some demons that are attached to these old sins and maybe they're generational sins. I mean, there's a lot of spiritual theology that was going into it too, but you know, it would, it would kind of turn into when we had this trusted group, maybe five, six guys, um, we would tell, we do like a general confession, um, with each other. And then we pray over each other and it would be, it would always be very powerful experience. Um, I, I think there is just intrinsically power in, in saying that out loud, but, um, and trusting in the Holy Spirit's healing. But then we all graduated college and we all got careers and like one of the leaders ends up in a different state for a long time. And, um, it fell apart and it was devastating like that. Excuse me. Um, that structure wasn't there to hold it together longer than, I guess any longer than it was convenient for all of us. And, um, you know, what's so beautiful about the Catholic church is number one, how big it is that 
if my priest dies or if my priest gets reassigned or whatever, I mean, there's, there's another one somewhere else who is acting in the person of Christ and who has this, again, long tradition um, in which he's been ordained, you know, s- since the apostles um, and received that authority that the apostles received at the end of the book of John to forgive sins or to retain sins. And um, knowing that there's even more scriptural backing, that there's there's not just the scriptural backing, but the history um, and the tradition of, of this sacrament, um, even though it maybe looks different than it did back in, back in, you know, 280, it's, it's still, it's still that same idea. And, um, it's structured in such a way that it will not go away. It will never go away. And, um, it's not dependent on one or two or five or 10 guys. It's, it's the Holy spirit is holding his church together and (laughs) Jesus will always be available to us. Yeah, that's amazing. That's well said. The, the, and and the funny thing is, I mean, it, it, of course it's scriptural to confess your sins to one another, and you guys are doing that. It's also scriptural that people were given the authority to forgive sins, right? <laughs> it's funny that, because I did the same thing, and, and we had groups like that uh, for a couple of years myself, not quite as hardcore as yours was. Ours was a bit more... Uh, the guys kind of failed at having it more organized. We, we tried our best, but a similar we were attempt at, at doing something like that, and we base that off Scripture. But, of course, there's equal amount of Scripture, actually probably a bit more Scripture, that talks about the apostles being given the authority to forgive sins. It's, it's pretty clear. And I think realizing that the Catholic Church believes that, that actually is passed on through apostolic succession to the bishops and then down through the ages, that still exists. Like, finding that was like, Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> this is super scriptural, and it still exists today. Was like, wow, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and what's what's interesting to me uh, now? This is more subjective, and maybe wouldn't resonate with everybody. But um, I noticed. So I didn't get baptized until I was like twenty, twenty-one. Even though I'd confessed Christ at like age five, um, but when I got baptized. I, I noticed significant more breakthrough in my struggles with sin. And then once I started going to confession as a Catholic, like the things that felt overwhelming no longer are overwhelming. Like we're going deeper in that struggle. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, some someone may brush that off as subjective, but there is a theology behind that, that, you know, when we confess our sins, we receive the grace yeah. from God to fight those particular sins when we're confronted with that temptation again. And that's certainly been true in my life. I mean, I didn't have a first confession where I was like weeping and crying afterwards and just felt like, oh, I'm just like everything is better. But over the last two years now, it's very clear that this is this there's power there and it's going deeper in uprooting what's really been causing my sin um, or causing me to want to sin irresistibly. Now it, it no longer does that. Yeah. And the difference for me between, you know, confessing your sins to, to one another, writing good, asking Christ for forgiveness versus 
you know, believing that Christ left us with a church and a structure and a priesthood and the power to uh, forgive sins, and that Christ acts through that and gives tangible grace, and that's passed down through time. And to see that backed up in history and in Scripture and in the writings of the early church fathers, those are two different things at play there, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and to actually go to confession and believe that, that that priest is speaking the words that Christ put on his lips. You know, our, our, our friends couldn't do that. They weren't, they, no one was claiming ever to do that when, you know, in a bunch of guys, you know, doing accountability. No one was claiming to be able to forgive sins in, in Christ's name. But having that in, in, the, in the priesthood and in, in confession, in all the sacraments, that idea that the priest is acting in that way, that really is mind-blowing. And, and that really is, like, the, the faith supercharged, right? The faith on steroids, yeah. like Christianity, like, plus, 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 plus. It just, it just by its nature, you're, you're digging deeper, right? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's well said. And I mean, uh, of course you again, you have people in the Catholic Church who aren't who aren't great Catholics, like who leave, right? The Catholics yeah. I met for a long time were were ex-Catholics who had left because they didn't have a relationship with Christ. They didn't know Christ. They thought it was this ritual and this this rote stuff. They they didn't I don't think know their faith very well. They weren't taught their faith very well. It's a failure of catechesis, the failure of 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 listening during <laughs> during mass. It's all kinds of failures. But if you actually look at what the church teaches, if you if you meet practicing Catholics who are, are doing their faith, who are trying their darndest, I mean, that speaks a very, you know, hear stories like yours, Mike, that's a very compelling picture of a beautiful uh, Catholic faith, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, like I said, both of my parents are of that generation where yeah. so many grew up Catholic to some degree and found Christ in a Protestant context. And all I can say is I, I, I don't know why that happened. Obviously it happened on a widespread basis, but what I am seeing now is um, a fullness, you know, of, of what I was handed on, which was beautiful and, and even more growth, more fullness in, in the Catholic church. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'll have to have you back for sure because there's much more we can unpack. We can go on for for a long, long time, I think. Kenny was not wrong. I Thank you, Kenny, by the way. <laughs> oh, good. As it turns oh, out. Oh, good. Uh, you have a blog. You have a podcast, I think, or you're working on one or something. I, I don't want to get ahead of you, but where can you point listeners towards to find more of what you're doing and, and follow you, Mike? Where should they go? Boy, um, so... Yes, I do have a blog. <laughs> it's been inactive for a while. Um, had some other other things come up over the summer, and I just haven't gotten back to it. Um, but I wrote out most of this story, and my wife actually made a couple of really beautiful posts as well on my uh, blog, my website at sharpenediron.org. And um, my podcast is just trying to make that a little more accessible, and I'm just reading my blog posts Um and recording it and putting it out on uh, Apple and Spotify. So, um, you know, all good, good 10, 20 listeners each time I, I, I posted and, but it's been, it's been really good. It's, yeah. it's been really good. And I really, th- I think this will be the impetus to get back into it. Um, it's just been, it's so much fun talking to converts, even talking to people who are just interested in, in knowing the story. Um, I think there's a lot for, me to learn and and for them to learn from these conversations. So I really appreciate you inviting me on because 
I love talking to other converts too. Oh, well, grateful to have you. Grateful to have you. And I appreciate, you know, doing our, our part to, to widen that net of, of Protestants becoming Catholic. I love that, that, that you had your experience of what Protestants become Catholic. So I had, <laughs> yes. I had mine too, where I actually, I put that into Google and thought I'd get no results. And I found a list and thought, what, this actually happens? And I was, <laughs> I was floored that people, became, you know, good Protestants became Catholic. So, we're doing our part to, to get That's more right. names out there and people Google it next time. They'll find people like you. So. Well, thank oh, you very much. So th- thanks, Mike. I want to say God bless you, uh, your family, the work you're doing for the church. It's awesome stuff. And thank you so much for being here this week, Mike. Thanks, Keith. I really appreciate it. Well, friends, I hope you loved that conversation. Uh, I, I hit I hit the stop button to finish recording, and Mike and I chatted for a much a long time afterwards, and we'll definitely chat more again in the future because he's got great insights, great things to say, and a fantastic conversion story. Hopefully, you enjoyed that too. I loved having it. Hopefully, that comes out in the conversation. It was a joy to talk to Mike. To watch this show, head over to youtube.com slash thecordialcatholic. Find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at cordialcatholic, the cordialcatholic on Facebook, and your feedback can come to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I love to get your emails. I write back as soon as I possibly can to all those emails, and thank you for, for letting me know with your questions and, and asking different things and giving feedback. It's all very valuable, and I love to hear from you guys those different ways. So thank you for reaching out. If you feel called to support this show financially, you can head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. Those links are in the show notes, guys. It's not my full-time job, so your help helps to, to fund these things, the equipment and hosting and upgrades and all those kinds of things, that, that the expenses, and make it possible for me to do this to begin with, not have to quit this thing and get a part-time job to afford <laughs> to do stuff. So thank you for helping to underpin this show. Uh, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, leave a rating or review if you can. That helps to push the podcast out to new people. And please do tell a friend, pass it on. Who might want to hear this show? Who might benefit from this show? Think of who that might be. Pray and then pass it on. And thanks, guys. Pray for me. I'm praying for you too. Talk to you again next week. Take care and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.